the back half of our series on meeting with God. The first two weeks we focused on the nature of meeting with God and specifically the Word of God, and now we're transitioning topics into prayer. And as we jump into the topic, before we jump into the topic, before we engage with prayer uh, this morning, uh, I want to just start by reminding everyone of the the why of the class and how prayer kind of fits into the topic. So uh, if you have a handout, and if you don't, there are handouts, uh, although I think someone snagged them. Um, (laughs) I think Sam might have them. but yeah, if you have a handout, you'll notice that there is a, um, uh, a single sentence under topic number one, and that's really sort of me boiling down the class in a single sentence or two. Prayer is more than just asking God for things. Prayer can also be a means of enjoying fellowship and communion with God. And that's what we'll be focusing on this morning. Prayer is more than just asking God for things. Prayer can also be a means of enjoying fellowship and communion with God. And hammering that point home a little bit, this series is called Meeting with God, or we could say Encountering God or Experiencing God. God is not some abstract, unknowable, entirely transcendent, detached being. He is a God who loves us, who cares deeply about us, who knows us, and is very much interested in our knowing him as well. And should be, make that really clear. That's not simply knowing facts about him. I'm using the word know in a much more biblical sense to have a deep relational knowledge of someone. Um, you can, in point of fact, know facts about someone and not really know them. You can know facts about me. You can know my height, my job, um, maybe a hobby or two, the, the fact that I'm in, in seminary. You can know things about me without ever really knowing me. And in order to know me, you have to, you have to experience me. You have to, you have to talk with me. You have to spend time with me. You have to get to know my, my attitudes, my likes, my, my, my quirks, all of those sorts of things. And that requires interaction. In fact, you can even have a relationship with me and not really know me. Um, I have cousins I have never met. I have a status relationship with them. We've got a familial tie. We're cousins. I have no idea who they are. They are as much strangers to me as anybody else I might meet on the street. You can even have relationships with someone that go stale. If my son uh, 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 grows up and turns 18, wants nothing to do with me, flies across the country and lives over there, I knew him at one point in time, but eventually he will change. He will have new likes, desires, perspectives, uh, uh, lifestyles, whatever, and my relationship with him will have you know, essentially be a memory at that point. I won't know him as he is, as he changes and he evolves. We, in order to have active personal relationships with one another, requires interaction with one another. And in the same way, in the same way, we as believers, and I'm speaking to those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an eternal, uh, 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 irrevocable relationship with God. We, through what Christ has done, have had our sins removed entirely, past, present, and future. His perfect life covers us. God views us as, as perfectly righteous in Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters of a smiling Father. That relationship never changes, never goes away. It is irrevocable. But God doesn't want it to stop there. Our relationship with him is not merely intended to be a a change in status from sinner to saint. It's something that we are to engage in and experience 
every day. We were redeemed so that we might stop suppressing the knowledge of him, the truth about him. We were redeemed so that instead we might be in fellowship with him, that we might pursue him, know him, meet with him, experience with him. We were literally made for this. We can and should have an active personal relationship with God, and that's what this class is about. The first two weeks, Tim covered one of the means of doing that, namely the Word of God, that we should have lives that are saturated by the Word of God, whether that's through reading, hearing, um, studying, memorizing, or meditating. One of the ways that we build, sustain that experience of relationship with God, know Him better, is through the Word of God. And likewise, one of the means by which we do that is also prayer, which is the subject of the next two weeks. Um, Does that make sense? That's the why of the class. Any questions as to what we're doing here or what we're going to be sort of covering from a macro perspective? Excellent. Okay. Well, since we're talking about prayer, let's go to God in prayer and ask his time of blessing this morning. Lord, you are such a good God, and we are so grateful that the hearts that that long to know you can be satisfied, that we can know you deeply and fully, that we can experience and interact with you in a meaningful way, Lord. We, we are grateful to that. I pray to that end this morning that my words would be fit and accurate and that you would use them this morning, that we would have open and receptive hearts to hear what you would have for us on the subject of prayer, that you'd be glorified in it, and that our sense and experience of you would be deepened and we would walk away with a better understanding of of how to do that on a a regular basis. And I ask you for these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so that was the why. Let's talk a little bit about the what of what we're going to be covering this week and next, just setting the table. Um, and I have to you know, say something that will be completely obvious, uh, or should be obvious, uh, a necessary thing that if we don't make sure we're all on the same page, everything else I'm going to say the next two weeks is going to be completely useless. Um, and that is specifically that we are supposed to be active in prayer. If we're not active in prayer, then, then the, again, the rest of the next two weeks is going to be kind of a, of a miss. Um, Christians are expected to be active in prayer. If you were to open up, uh, I, I, I use the New American Standard Version, I just looked for every instance of the word pray or prayer. There were 140 plus instances in the New Testament alone to say nothing of times in which somebody was praying and that word was used or other synonyms for prayer like supplication or request or ask. Prayer is everywhere in the New Testament. And I'm going to ask some folks to read just a couple of quick verses, um, two in particular. Can I get a volunteer to read Acts chapter 2, verses 41? Matt, thank you. And then, uh, Jeff, can you read uh, Acts 6-4? All right. Matt, uh, Acts 2, 41-42, to 42, pretty please. For those who received his word were baptized in there, were added to that day about 3,000 this is um, the aftermath of Peter's Pentecost sermon. There were thousands of people who come to saving faith, and what do they immediately do? They immediately devote themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There's something natural about faith and the practice of prayer. These things should mark believers. 
Jeff, uh, Acts 6 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This is the statement made by the apostles as they were appointing the, the first deacons in the church to help deal with the dispute over the distribution of food, particularly the widows. And this is a summation of the ministry of the apostles. In a sense, it's a summation of all uh, ministry of, of pastor elders in the church. And it's to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Prayer is intrinsically important to what we do in the context of the church, both the congregation as a whole in Acts 2, but also the, the leadership, the, 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 the focus, the primary focus of leadership in the church. Um, there are other passages. There's a couple of references in your notes. We know some of these, you know, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing but in everything uh, uh, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or another very analogous passage in 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Anything, anything, everything that we need, that we might have a tendency to be scared or hard-pressed over, we cast it on God. We go to God in prayer. Prayer should be as natural to the Christian as breathing. Um, Prayerless Christianity is an oxymoron. Um, And yet, as often as we talk about prayer, as often as we engage in the practice, you know, corporately and privately, we don't spend a lot of time talking about how to do it, how to approach it, the right perspectives and attitudes that uh, we should have. We, we sort of take for granted that believers know what prayer is and what it looks like. Um, and because we do that, I think we're especially susceptible to having error creep into our practice of prayer. And one of those common errors getting to the point here, one of those common errors is to see that prayer uh, as something less than what God intended. We don't have an inaccurate view of prayer. We just have an incomplete one, which we'll talk more about. So this week, we are going to focus on a, a pretty generally neglected part of prayer. And maybe this doesn't include you. Maybe you have this down nailed, so I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush. But one of the generally neglected parts of prayer Um, is seeing that prayer can be a means of enjoying fellowship and communion with God. Prayer can be a means of enjoying fellowship and communion with God. That's our focus this week. Next week, we are going to look at some of the uh, other common errors and issues that creep up into prayer that can diminish our prayerfulness in general, but also diminish um, our spending time in prayer as a means of fellowship and communion with God, going back to the overall thrust of this course. So, to that end, again, today focusing on prayer as a means of fellowship and communion with God. Um, And we have three objectives that are there in your notes, your handout. Uh, Number one, we're going to look at the example of Jesus. I believe Jesus' example prayer uh, as a means of fellowship with the Father. Um, We're also going to spend some time uh, defining prayer, kind of giving a more complete definition that we can walk away with so we remember some of these concepts in the future. And then third, we'll spend some time practically talking about just how we can foster that sense of communion with God in prayer. Make sense? Yay. Okay. I heard murmurs. That counts. All right. 
Uh, <laughs> moving on then, you know, setting the table, talking about prayer as communion with God. And again, you'll know, we're going to talk about this and then we're going to define prayer. I know that's a little unusual to talk about prayer before defining it. It's going to make sense. Bear with me. But I think it's important to sort of start with Jesus's example to set the table. And uh, here I'll also look for a couple of volunteers for passages, and I need uh, three. Um, the first one is Luke five fifteen to sixteen. Uh, we'll send that back, please. Um, and then uh, Luke six twelve. Josh, thank you. And then Matthew fourteen twenty three. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, so the first one is Luke five fifteen to sixteen. Now even more than before that the men brought a great crowd gathered to hear him, he healed of their infirmities. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Um, the New American Standard has that as would often slip away to the wilderness and play. There there was a habit and a custom of our Lord to depart, to leave, and to spend time in solitary prayer. Um, in fact, going back to those 140 so references, I went through every single one, and a surprisingly decent number of them were references to Jesus's prayer life, and overwhelmingly, you, you see Jesus slipping away and praying. Overwhelmingly, you see him slipping away and praying. And So Luke 5 talks about this being something that he does uh, somewhat habitually, it's also uh, focusing here for a second a little uh, counter um, expectations. You know, people are, are, are thronging to Jesus, and I think naturally we would expect Jesus to, to, to spend more time with them, to minister to them, to, 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 to shepherd them, to do what he you know, needs to do with them. But people are thronging after him, and he slips away, and he prays. He, he's making prayer, solitary private prayer, uh, a bit of a priority in practice. Uh, Luke six twelve. Who had that? Josh. Okay, thank you. Same thing. Another reference to Jesus going off to pray. Uh, this time we, we see a definitive sense of, of duration. Jesus would not only slip away often, but when he prayed, it was quite often for very long periods of time. More solitary prayer. Lots of time in prayer. Uh, Matthew fourteen twenty three. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself, praying. Same thing in Matthew. It's not just Luke pointing it out. More solitary prayer, and and again, a decent length of time. This was Jesus' clear habit. in your notes as well, I have uh, Matthew 26. Um, if you turn with their, t- turn there together, uh, pretty please. This is a, l- a little bit of a longer one, and it makes the same point, but I just kind of want to highlight some, some interesting things in the text there. It's Matthew 26. Uh, we start in verse 36. This, and as you're turning there, I'll just quickly explain. This is Jesus coming to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is um, before the crucifixion, obviously. This is in the last moments of his time with his disciples, and he is he's coming into the Garden. And in verse 36, he says to his disciples, so he's got them there with him, sit here and I will go over there and pray. That's what 36 says. 37, he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. So he's, he's dividing the, the, the disciples up. He's got, you know, presumably Judas isn't here. He's got 11 with him. He is telling them to sit. He's taking three with him. 
and and then he tells them that his, his my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death remain here and keep watch with me and then in verse 39 he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying father if it's possible let this cup pass from me yet not as i will but as you will so they're all with him he tells some to stay he takes a few more with him he tells them to stay and he goes a little bit further on to pray by himself and then, of course, uh, it doesn't go super well. He tells the disciples to watch and, and, and watch with him. And then in verse, thir- verse 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he says to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for an hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So they're praying. He's praying separately. He went away a second time, again, distancing himself and prays, saying, My father, if this, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And so Jesus is like making a point of solitary prayer. And this, this, is, this is the low point, aside from the cross. This is the low point of his time and ministry on the earth. This is the point where he, his soul was oppressed to the point of death. He's crying out. He came literally to the earth for the purposes of being our substitutionary savior. And this is the point in time where he is asking if that could be taken away. I mean, this, this is the low point. This is the painful point of Jesus's ministry short of the cross itself. And he's, he's going to his father in what looks like fairly intensely personal, private prayer. And so the question that's worth asking ourselves is why? Why all this emphasis on uh, praying alone? Why did Jesus pray alone? And now I was thinking about like myself, right? If I'm, if I'm praying alone, there's usually some, some pretty silly reasons for doing it. Number one, I am praying for stuff I don't want any of y'all to know about. That's usually one of the reasons why I'm praying by myself. Or maybe I'm um, um, less confident or, or, or self-conscious when I'm praying in a group. But those aren't things that Jesus suffered from. That's not why he's withdrawing himself and praying. He wasn't nervous about how he sounded. He wasn't hiding information from the disciples. But again, this comes up over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. Um, in fact, you could even say, I mean, Come on, this is, a, this is a missed opportunity here. I mean, why not have Jesus bring the disciples into his practice of prayer? How instructive would that be? And it, it seems somewhat clear that that's not his practice. In fact, let's turn to Luke 11.1 1, really fast. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And I will read that one. But there we read... It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, notice Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. So again, seems to be Jesus withdrawing himself. He's praying in a solitary way. And when he's done, his disciples ask for instruction. And you, could, you can kind of even almost read that in a snotty way, right? Like, 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 Teach us to do the thing that you're doing, just like John taught his disciples. You're kind of neglecting us here, Jesus. That, that is a interpretation of what the disciples are asking him here. Um, and I, and I, I think there's some truth to that. I think that this is perhaps the disciples asking Jesus to, to teach them to pray. They, 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 they see Jesus constantly going away from them, praying by himself, and they're, they're asking to be brought into it. And, and again, you know, you could argue that, that, that if Jesus had invited his disciples into his personal time of prayer, he could model it for him. And, and 
certainly, you know, you could you could make the argument Jesus doesn't make mistakes, so this is not you know not a missed opportunity. He is going off by himself deliberately. I think he's actually is modeling an important part of prayer, something that we and the disciples would appreciate later. I think he's he's modeling specifically the priority and the beauty of time alone with God. His time alone was precious, it was necessary, and it was deliberate. You know, going back to the Luke 5 passage, Jesus would often slip away when? When crowds would press in on him. This, this sounds a lot like he's going off to recharge his batteries. It, it sounds a lot like he's going off to spend time with the Father with, that he is loved by and that whom he loves, the Father who he has experienced perfect communion with as the second person of the Trinity. Um, Jesus has all the hard marks of a man who, who cries out with a psalmist in like uh, Psalm 84.10, you know, better is one day in your courts than a thousand outside. He, he understands the, the beauty and the priority of a refreshing time with his father amidst everything that's going on. Now, I think it also explains uh, the, the duration that Jesus would often go and pray for. Certainly, he had a lot of things to pray for, but part of, of the reason why he would go off in solitary prayer, part of the reason why he would do this um, um, for such duration is that he was having a refreshing personal time with his father. And I think this is what Jesus is modeling for us, and, and, and it's something that we need to recognize in terms of our, the characteristic of our prayer lives. Prayer can absolutely just be something where we ask God for something we need. Don't, don't misunderstand me, please. Prayer can be that. Sometimes it needs to be just that. But prayer can also be more. It can be a time where we spend with our Father in a, in a time of communion, a time of fellowship, a time of interaction. I think that's what Jesus is modeling here in these passages for us and for his disciples. Make sense? Any questions, comments, any disagreements with that? Yes. Uh, and how it starts off um, recognizes who God is as we go before Him. Starts off, Hallowed be your name. Doesn't go off first in supplication or anything else. But that's where it starts. And the purpose of getting alone with God is to worship Him and recognize who He is. To point, you're actually anticipating where we're going to go, so thank you. <laughs> no, it's perfect. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, Didi. Um, I'm not thinking a good example of Jesus participating in corporate prayer. Yeah, there's 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 precious few. I mean, his prayer where he's praying, you know, in front of his disciples is, you know, perhaps an example of it. But yeah, I mean, overwhelmingly, you see Jesus sort of doing prayer by himself or at best prayer with people uh, observing, not necessarily corporate prayer as we, we do. Yeah, I can't think of an example, you know, that's analogous to what we're going to do, you know, say tonight, for example. Other questions, comments? Does that make sense? Really? A lot of it is really helpful. Just to ask a question, since you're using Luke 11, um, this example of prayer in response to the disciples' request, it looks to me that the majority of this prayer is asking for God to provide. Um, So would you say, since we're using this as a model, would you say that um, it's appropriate and maybe even encourage that most of our prayer is asking something from God? Or Because we're talking right now about communion. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're...
I, I love that question too because it also anticipates where we go. When we get to the practical section, we'll talk about that. And I'll emphasize it here as well. We're talking about a, um, a often sort of neglected uh, aspect of prayer, not the predominant focus of prayer. You go through 140 verses in the New Testament and the vast majority of them, aside from Jesus' example, are either people asking about things or telling you about things they asked for. Um, you know, so there, there absolutely is an overwhelming sense, and to Willie's point, and when, when, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, there is absolutely a request-focused experience in prayer. So, um, as I mentioned, prayer is something that absolutely is going to, you know, generally involve asks. Prayer is absolutely something that, where sometimes it's, it's just that. You might have, you know, uh, uh, some doxological statement at the beginning, um, but, you know, even back to Philippians 4, you know, be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and petition with thanksgiving. The focus there is on the asking. Thanksgiving is part of it, but the focus is on the ask. Um, and so this, I'm not, I'm not suggesting, and we'll get to this again, but I'm not suggesting that, you know, you need to have an hour-long minimum prayer time and 45 minutes of it needs to be communion. I'm not suggesting that you have to do this every single time you pray either, but it is an aspect of prayer that we we can leverage and should leverage in our experience and relationship with God. Prayer should not merely be the asking for things. Um, it can also be, should also be, an opportunity to commune and relate and experience our Father who loves us. Does that make sense? It's a really great question. Thank you. Other questions? All right, good. Excellent. All right, so we've talked a lot about prayer. Uh, let's make sure that we are defining it. And some of this next section, given the questions, uh, may be just a little bit redundant, so bear with me slightly. Um, but I do want to hammer home this point that you know, our, our definition of prayer is important, and I'm going to suggest one in a second that tries to help us keep everything that we're going to be talking about today in mind in a, in a simple way. Um, because we, you know, in my experience, and hopefully this tracks with everybody, in my experience, we typically have like a default definition of prayer that is essentially solely about asking for things. Um, there are a million definitions of prayer out there. I perused a few of them. Some are so simple that they're almost too vague. Uh, prayer is talking to God. That, that's, that's not like a super helpful definition. Uh, there are some that are so complicated that I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and so, you know, people have defined prayer variously in various places, but, you know, deep down at our root, we tend, tend to talk about prayer as if it were merely asking God for things. And that's kind of like the default view of prayer you'll see in the notes, asking God for the things that we want or need. And then what happens typically, again, broad brushstrokes here, but what happens typically is when we start evaluating how we are doing as people who pray, we tend to evaluate presuming that definition and focus on one of two categories or both. How frequently we're in prayer or how long we're in prayer, and then are we asking for the right things? And that tends to be the, the sum total of, of how we you know, typically think and talk about prayer. Um, we think about it in terms of asking for things. We t evaluate the frequency and the, the, the longevity of our prayers and then whether we're asking for the right things or not. And please, again, don't misunderstand me to Willie's point or question. 
that's not bad, right? Like, this is not, like, a wrong thing to be asking ourselves, like, am I praying at all? Am I presuming on the sovereignty of God? Do I have a a wrong view of human responsibility and I'm never praying at all? Am I asking for the sorts of things that I should be asking for? Are my prayers entirely for, you know, my own health and my favorite sports teams and nothing else? Like, those those are good questions to be asking ourselves. It's just an incomplete understanding of what prayer could be. And so I want to suggest a definition that is a little more complete, a definition that forces us to sort of think about this concept of communion and fellowship, and that is also what's in your notes there. I think a fuller definition of prayer is communication to God in the context of our relationship with God. Communication to God in the context of our relationship with God. Um, and breaking that down a little bit, you know, uh, c- communication, I use communication because it must have substance. Uh, communication requires us to have something that we are communicating. Um, didn't use talking to God because certainly prayer can happen out loud or in your head. Um, but there is a sense of substance that we're, we're, we're communicating to God. Um, we used to God as opposed to with God because prayer is a communicational one-way street. We are talking to him. He's not necessarily talking back to us. Doesn't mean he's not active. Doesn't mean he's not reacting. Doesn't mean that he's not engaging in answering prayer, but he's not talking back to us. We are talking to him. And then I used in the context of a relationship with God for, for two reasons. First and foremost, because without Jesus, without the relationship through Jesus, there is no fellowship with God. There is no hope of answered prayer. There's no hope at all in point of fact. And so relationship is absolutely critical to you know prayer having any any value or utility but as it relates to this class today again if we're going to have a more complete view of prayer one that includes communion and fellowship we really need to think about prayer in relational terms and if you're asking why that's a great question um and the, the answer the short answer is and we don't you know this is something that that i think in my most of my Christian life, I didn't think a whole whole lot about, but our prayer life really does correspond to the various relationships that we have with God. And I'll say that again: our prayer life really does correspond to the various relationships (plural) that we have with God. And so, I'm going to ask for help here. Um, what sorts of relationships does the Bible say that we have with God? If we were going to make a list. What sorts of relationships does the Bible say? And I'll, to make this easy, I'll start off with one. We are creatures, creations. He is our sovereign creator. That's one relationship that we have with God. What are some others? Didi. Children, children, father. That's a great one. Absolutely. What else? Yeah, that's a great one too. Absolutely. He, uh, he's our master, and we are his servants. Absolutely. Friend as well, absolutely. We are friends. Matt. Potter and clay, absolutely. Sheep and the shepherd, 100%. Vine and branches, absolutely. Any others you can think of? 
the only other one I have on my list is brothers. We are his, his Jesus's brothers, the firstborn of many brethren in, in Romans 8. Um, we have a variety of, of described relationships. Some of these terms are uh, essentially meant to be synonymous. Um, some are you know, uh, just descriptors of the same relationship. But we have these various relationships with God in the New Testament. And these relationships impact how we pray. So think about it for just a second. Why is it that you pray for your daily needs to be met? Why? Certainly you need them, right? Like, you know, you, you need to eat bread, so you want bread, so you ask for bread. But why pray about it? Well, we pray about it because we are creatures, and he is the creator who is also the sovereign ruler of creation. We have that relationship to him, and that is why we ask for the things from him for our daily needs. Why is it that we pray for missions or evangelism or the one another's that we do here in the context of the church? We pray for those things because our master gave us those marching orders. And so we are praying to our sovereign Lord for uh, grace and help and the speedy fulfillment of the task that he has given us. What we pray for drives, I'm sorry, our relationships with God drives what we pray for. Um, And more than that, they also drive sort of uh, our expectations and our attitudes in prayer as well. But we we, we said that we're not just creatures, we're not just servants, we're we're brothers, we're friends. Um, I did forget one. Uh, uh, We're we're the bride of Christ, so there's a, a, a groom and bride relationship. We're sons and daughters of our Father. We have these relationships as well. And those relationships likewise drive prayer. Um... You know, one of the things that we, you know, we see Paul praying for at least once is the speedy return of the bridegroom to get back his bride. When he cries out, Maranatha, it's, that's come quickly, Lord Jesus. He's, 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 he's praying for God to come back and to, to rescue us. Um, so these relationships, again, drive what we pray for. They also change our expectations and attitudes. We don't come to God in prayer as a distant uh, servant to our master only, we come to God as a father who loves his children. And that's one aspect that Jesus teaches us when he's talking about his disciples in prayer. He focuses on the fatherhood of God in the context of prayer. In the Luke 11 passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When Jesus gives examples of prayer in the New Testament to his disciples, he is emphasizing over and over and over again implicitly the fatherhood of God. This is a primary relationship that we should be seeing our prayer in light of, in part because of what it infers about the expectations that we should have in prayer, but also uh, how we should be approaching prayer in general. And I, I, th- I saw a hand. Is that... Uh, yeah, kind of a but the, the, the idea, I think, in, in the Lord's Prayer of, of we're asking God for our daily needs is because we are not supposed to be thinking about that for ourselves in the overall aspect, and we're supposed to be ministering to people. So if we are giving our, our own provision of our daily bread or our own provision of our time or our own provision of our uh, resources, to other people as ministering like Christ was, then we are relying on God to provide for what we need to survive instead of us providing for what we need to survive. We are fully dependent on God for every little scrap of breath that we breathe, 100%. 100%. 
When, when Jesus talks to his disciples about prayer, he overwhelmingly emphasizes in the context of prayer the fatherhood of God. We are praying when we pray to someone with whom we have a deep familiarity, a closeness of relationship, and a favored status. And it's this relationship, the fatherhood of God, uh, him being our father, that also suggests to us that prayer is not merely a means of asking for what we need. If you and I were merely creatures or merely servants, then asking for resources or help or guidance, maybe all that prayer would be appropriately used for. But we're not. We're, we're sons and daughters of God. Can you imagine? imagine a relationship between a father and a son where the only time the kid wanted to talk to his dad was when he needed something? Or the only time that a daughter went to her father was to get access to the credit card? Like, that would be an absurd and monstrous relationship. In the same way, we are sons and daughters of our father. If our relationships with God drive our prayers, I think I put this in your notes there, yeah. If our relationship with God drives our prayers, our attitudes, expectations, and the very things we talk about, then our status as sons and daughters, to say nothing of our status as the bride of Christ, or friends of God, or brother of Christ, demands that we see prayer not merely as the practice of asking God for things, but also as a time to talk and enjoy time with our father, brother, friend, and husband. Which is why, circling back to our definition, I think it's so important that as we're thinking about prayer, we are training ourselves to think about prayer in relational terms. Prayer is not merely communication to God, not merely asking God for things. Prayer is communication to God in the context, the full context of our relationships. It is understanding those relationships and letting them color what we ask for. It's understanding those relationships and coloring how we ask. And it's understanding those relationships and letting them color the, the, the non-ask portion of our prayer life, namely communion and fellowship with God. Does that make sense? Jeff? I see here through um, forward when he's when they said teach us to pray, he says, Give us day by day our answer bread, forgive us our sins. Four uh, times he uses the word us, and clearly not meaning himself. He's not including himself in the us because he doesn't mean the sins to be forgiven. so it's curious as to uh, why do you think he's using us instead of me uh, in, in that in, in, in how he's teaching them to pray yeah, it's, not, I, it's not forgive me of my sins it's forgive us so I, I'm just trying to wrap my head around what he meant is it kind of corporate or is it um, he wants us to include um, our brothers in these things or do you see a significance yeah, to that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, think, I think there are reasons. I mean, you could, you could say it's one or the other, but with Jesus, I'm going to go with both. Um, one is because we are absolutely supposed to have a corporate aspect to our, our prayer life, 100%. Um, it's not meant to merely be private prayer. There, there should be a corporate aspect. But also, too, I mean, going back to 
point that was made earlier, we could also go back to, you know, we go to Philippians 2, you know, look out not just for your own interest, but the interests of others. We should have a heart disposition that is not entirely focused on me and my needs, but the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ and those around me. Um, so there, there is a sense in which we're both supposed to be engaging in this in a corporate sense, but also in a um, not just me sort of sense as well. It's a great question. Tim. So this points really very much to your point. I think you're addressing some of the ways that our hearts can tend to just attract toward being duty-bound in what we do and asking the should question first. And there are shoulds, but you know, uh, John Owen, his book on communion with God, he talks about his whole thing is the Second Corinthians 13, 14, the, the love of the Father, the grace of Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit being sort of the primary way that we fellowship with each member distinctly the Trinity. And so it's so powerful this reflection on the love of the Father saying what's so it's like what's the worst way we could offend the Father who loves us as he does? And the answer is by denying or doubting his love. Like that's and we tend to think of like what you know, what should I pray for? And again, there's value in that, but even the question of the a father who loves as he does, just to neglect or overlook or doubt or 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 completely deny that he does love us that way is it's the worst thing we could do. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. It's an absolutely great point. It reminds, I mean, when, uh, when, when Luther was teaching through the, the story of the prodigal son, he made great emphasis on the fact that in the story, when the, the, the father, father is actively looking in the distance, waiting for his son, when he sees him, he drops everything and he runs to his son. Um, you know, when Jesus, in the same context, is teaching about the, um, uh, heaven rejoicing over, over lost sheep, I mean, the, 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 the image is overwhelming of a father who is not just trying to win tally marks on people, you know, out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of my son. And this is, this is a deeply relational context in which our salvation falls. And, um, you know, it's not merely a status. It's, it's, it's not merely good things that God has done for us. We're, we're saved into a relationship in the fullest sense of the word. A big R relationship in terms of the connective that we have to God and a little R relationship in terms of the experience of that relationship. Um, and and that translates into prayer as well, which is kind of the, the horse we're beating here this morning. Is that sufficiently beaten, that horse? Is that... Uh... <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, well, why don't we, in the interest of time, move on to the uh, great cool so what part of the, of the morning. So if you're, if you're tracking with me, um, I've suggested that Jesus modeled a life of prayer that wasn't just about asking for things. His prayer life, which, um, you know, to, to some degree had corporate and public elements, also included a bit of lengthy private prayer, uh, private prayer which was maybe to be overly simplistic, quality time with dad. I've suggested that we've adopted a view of prayer that keeps, the, the, keeps in mind all the relationships that we have with God and that uh, our prayer life could be a healthy mix, healthy mix of requesting and communing, requesting and communing. Um, and by the way, either separately or together. You know, it's not like it's a whole different ball of wax. But if, uh, if we're right about all of this and the question we should be asking is, all right, so how do we go about doing this? What does this actually look like in practice? Um, <laughs> is this a special pose that we adopt? Do we say, you know, special words? Is communing with God in prayer like some sort of like special silent meditative practice that we do? Like, how does this work? 
obviously it's none of those things. Um, I have six uh, uh, items in your in your notes. Some are a little uh, more explanatory than others, but we're going to walk through those in the time that we have left. Um, these are meant to be sort of just you know if you're if you're interested, serious about communing with God, fellowship with God in prayer. Here's some some things to consider. Um, and the very very first one I am burdened to say is. Start by recognizing that prayer is not a formula. Everything else that I am going to say here is not meant to bind conscience on some sort of process or procedure. Um, Again, I'm not suggesting that we need to designate a minimum of 15 minutes every single time we ask God for something, uh, for, for fellowship. There's not a hard and fast rule here. Nowhere in the New Testament are you going to find a hard and fast rule here. Um, and I think that's deliberate. This is meant to be something that, again, it's a relationship with our Father. It's it's potentially going to look different for each person in terms of what's going on in their life, context, circumstances, the, the, the place where they're at in their faith. Um, this is all going to look different. So none of this stuff is meant to be prescriptive. So we need need to start off there. And again, back to uh, Willie's point earlier, sometimes prayer is just going to be asking for things. You know, you, the, the, you know before you, you go into a doctor's office for a scary test, it's probably just going to be a desperate, quiet prayer. Um, you know, Jesus commends the publican who said, you know, uh, uh, forgive me, Lord, I'm a sinner. Very simple, easy prayer. Prayer does not need to be something that's super long, super complicated, super drawn out. There's not necessarily a process or a formula for every single time that we pray. So first thing is I'm not setting down any rules here. Neither should you. Second, we do need to realize though that we have to carve out time to do this. We do have to be deliberate about this practice of communion with God. And last time uh, we met, last week, Tim was, was clear. Uh, the same thing is true of the Word of God. We have to carve out time uh, to do it. And, and, and we all get it, right? Life is busy. That's hard to do. Um, but we also need to recognize as well that we all make choices. And those choices have consequences on our time. And we should be engaged in sort of evaluating some of those choices and whether or not they're impacting or prohibiting our ability to engage God in this sort of prayer as well. Um, and and yeah, all, the, all the appropriate caveats I need to give, I mean, look, I, I get it. Even our best, best intentions fail at times. You know, uh, several times this week, I planned to get up early to spend time with God in prayer, and I had a miserable night's sleep, and it, it just it didn't happen. Um, sometimes you have a painful circumstance. You know, your, your, your time in the Word is interrupted by spouse having a miserable night's sleep, or the kids getting in trouble, or whatever else might happen in life. I get it. Those things happen. Again, not binding consciences here. Um, those things exist. They're real. That's a reality. But let's be also uh, honest with ourselves about how much time we fritter away, right? I mean, I'm not going to get my phone out. Maybe I will. This occupies way too much of my time. I don't want to admit to you how much of my time, but let's just say I don't want to admit it. Um, you know, today's Father's Day, right, too? I mean, I, I've got two kids. I make decisions about uh, what kind of extracurricular activities that they're engaged in. I decide whether or not I'm willing to spend six days a week taking them to and from different sporting events and those sorts of things or not. Those are choices that I make. Um, I'm not critiquing anyone's life decisions or choices uh, from, from, this, uh, from this podium. 
but you know, I, I need if, if if I spend all of my time doing those sorts of things and I'm too exhausted between you know work and school and uh, those sorts of family obligations to spend time in God, spend time with God in the Word or prayer or in the context of community. Well, my choices have consequences, and I should be willing to sort of reevaluate those. So, as we approach this topic, you know, hard truth for all of us is. We probably have time to do it. We will probably have to make some hard choices um, or give up things that we otherwise consider you know, sacred and precious to us. Um, but it is something that we do need to dedicate time to do. If our prayer life merely consists of asking for things when we find a spare moment to ask for things, I can promise you fellowship and communion with God is probably going to be a very, very distant back burner issue for you. Um, one thing, too, to point out, just by way of humble encouragement, going back to Jesus' example, he stayed up all night at times. He had people pressing in on him, crowds, his disciples. He deliberately put them aside, and he went off on his own to pray. And he would stay up all night if he needed to to do so. There was a priority in Jesus' life that he modeled for us as well. Now, please, <laughs> I'm not saying abandon your families. Um, that's, not, that's not the takeaway either. But you know, we can look at what he did and see just how much he prioritized time alone with God in prayer. He made the time. Third... And a little redundant, approach prayer in the context of your relationships with God. I can't emphasize this enough. As we go to God in prayer, make sure that those relationships are top of mind. Um, I find this to be really helpful myself. Um, You know, if I just rattle off a quick prayer to God, it's one thing. But when I'm conscious of the various relationships that I have with him and how those relationships inform the ask, I find myself having sweeter, fuller, longer times of prayer with God. Um, You're not just coming to someone with a need. You're coming as a beloved son or daughter approaching your father. Fourth, and this is the meat of it all. Um, as you envision talking to your father, utilize prayer, I'm sorry, utilize praise, thanksgiving, confessions, and even um, meditations from the word to engage in communion. Um, we, our, our prayer life, American prayer life at least, tends to follow a formula. We, we usually start with mostly because of things like the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We usually start with a word of thanks or a character trait of God, something that is analogous to, you know, Father, hallowed be your name. We usually get through that pretty quick, and we get right to the requests. That's sort of the pattern that we see our prayer life um, um, looking like. And so the question is, is why rush? Linger. Stay there. Stay in the praise portion. Worship. Give thanks. Um, This can look like uh, uh, reflecting out loud on what God is doing in your life and how good he is. Um, We we can uh, make a deliberate practice of letting sort of prayerful thanksgiving for God's actions in our life become part of the character of our prayer life. Um, and, and, and we don't need to look super hard for this. We have a thousand blessings every day that we can, you know, just, just spend four seconds thinking about. You're breathing right now. That's a gift. You woke up this morning. That's a gift. Um, you know, you're, you're, if, if you're married or have kids, they woke up this morning. That's a gift. God blesses us with, with innumerable undeserved blessings every second of every day. We can spend some time letting that inform our thinking and then letting that 
come off our lips to God in prayer. Recognize those things and, and thank him. Spend some time doing that. Um, it doesn't have to be formal, by the way. One of the things that I've found that's been, that's been sort of helpful um, is, is sort of this practice looks like, maybe, maybe could look like talking to God in the context of your day. You know, um, something like, you know, it was really gracious of you to, to let that presentation go well. Um, it was, you know, just really nice when so-and-so said the complimentary thing or um, we got to interact and joke. I mean, it's, it's, again, this is your father you're talking to. So without losing that sense of, of it's also God, that sense of grandeur, that sense of holiness, that sense of other, still recognizing that this is someone with whom you have a deep personal relationship and letting that inform the character of your your uh, uh, interactions, your thanksgiving, and your praise with him. If you're outside uh, and it's a beautiful day, like it's been the last couple of days, you know, praise him for the overflow of his goodness and the warmth or the colors of, and the trees. Um, everything that we see in, in nature is an overflow of God's good character, and we can turn that into praise as well. Um, if there are any sins that you're aware of, spend some time confessing those as well. Not as someone who is confessing sins so they can get to the asks and make sure that there's no barrier between you and God, but uh, confessing sin as someone who has who is sorry that you've, you've grieved a parent. Um, um, and, and if we're at a loss as to what to say, if, there's, if, if we're not entirely sure how to do this, there are plentiful examples in the Psalms or in some of the doxological statements in the New Testament where we can look to and be spurred to, to praise and adoration of God. Bake those things into your prayer life if you need something to sort of loosen the tongue up. But all of these are useful ways of engaging in communion with God. Yeah, no, I would just probably amend the, the interactive scripture because I find I just really quickly run out of creativity to think of things to think and praise God for. Uh, and I end up I end up usually going back to the same few things and they're pretty abstract. Um, and and it, it doesn't it doesn't have much vividness in my own soul. But tying it to think real like gifts and events in our lives or to scripture, there's just such it opens up such a panorama of yeah. God's attributes in action in various works um, it's it just it's just such a different experience to, to see the scriptures basically as a prayer guide yeah. absolutely Absolutely. Using the scripture is, is a, an amazing avenue to sort of not only have substance, but also to sort of teach you uh, what to do that you can you know, uh, incorporate that, that sort of same ethical practice in your, in your actual prayer life. That's kind of why I was talking about you know, letting this in some ways look like you're, you're reflecting on your day in a thankful way to God. Because you, to Tim's point, if you're, if you're simply trying to thank God for his you know, abstract character qualities, his love, his goodness, you'll list the same seven attributes over and over again. It becomes perfunctory pretty quick. Um, but letting this relate to the things that have happened in your day so far, if you're praying later on, or maybe the day before, if you're praying in the morning, there's a realness to it. There's an actual gratefulness to it. And there's, there's benefit beyond simply communing with God in prayer. The, um, the, the, the net effect is you start seeing those things in practice as they happen more vividly as well. Um, and so there's this beautiful sort of cyclical effect that can happen where you become more aware and more enamored with God's sovereignty as you engage um, in some of these things as well. One, um, 
since, since a lot of what I'm saying sounds a lot like to-dos, and I said at the beginning, I'm not giving you to-dos, uh, one, one helpful sort of ethic to sort of bring your attention back to, uh, in my mind, has always been Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve were in the garden pre-fall, God walked in the garden. And just, just stop and think about that for a second. Had, had Adam and Eve not sinned, what would their relationship with God have looked like? How personal would that have been given their proximity to him, their experience to him? That's, and that's what we were created and intended to do. We, that, that was, that's the relationship that we were intended to have. This is, again, this is not a, an abstract God. This is a God who made his home with us in paradise. That's the relationship standard that we were going to have. And so think about the, the interactions that Adam and Eve would have had with God, um, again, had the fall not occurred. And, 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 and take that ethic into your prayer life um, because that's the sort of, again, personal relationship that we are supposed to have. Don't do the thing, though, that is become somewhat a, a modern uh, epidemic in folks who advocate for, for prayer uh, as a means for communion with God, where you make God your, your bro, um, where you sort of like treat him with a, like a disrespectful, almost overly familiar term. We're not talking about you know, reducing God. He is still who he is, but you're, 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 you're interacting with him in the context of all your relationships with him, including that as a father and a son. Makes sense so far? Any questions so far? Wilson. I was just going to say that I like the point about praying and making requests in light of our relationship with him, especially when the answer that he gives us can be a no. Um, it's, it's just a good reminder to come back to that he's not some divine genie that sometimes wants to or sometimes doesn't, but it's in the context of a father who loves us in those situations. So even when that answer's a no, we don't have to be upset about that because he knows what's best. So I like that point. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, sure. Side of it, when we praise him, we don't we praise it in the storm, not just when our kids wake up. Sometimes they don't wake up. Um, not to be, you know, too dark. But no. when it's sunny outside, whatever, we're not just skipping along through life, and we praise him in the storms, despite because of who he is, not what he's done for us, because of the the eternal life he's given us, if nothing else. It is uh, one of, uh, it's a brilliant point, and it is one of the most humbling verses in all of the Bible where after Job suffers the loss of everything that he has, his response is not to curse God and die, as his wife recommended, but to fall down and worship. And it's a, it's a great point. It, we're, not, we're not only thanking God for the happy-go-lucky things in our life, every little bit of the pain and sorrow is also baked in there for our good as well. It's a great point. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, absolutely agree with not being flippant and respecting, not uh, being respectful and, and uh, honoring God for who He is. Absolutely. How do you, how do you balance that to just that thought with uh, again, which I agree with, with approaching with boldness and confidence, um, because we don't want to be in fear and approaching uh, like like the like the king in ancient Babylon, where you might just have you killed, right? But, but so, how do you how do you how do you balance that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, how do you balance um, sort of the the 
relational boldness that we have being adopted sons and daughters with the fact that this is still the God who spoke everything into existence um, and is in absolute control every molecule of existence as well and is you know completely other from us he's both transcendent and imminent how do we how do we balance those those two things um, I, I I also don't I mean, I think it boils down, and this there's not, again, any perfect formula to it, and it's a little bit of something where as you're immersing yourself in the Word of God and you kind of see both of those elements, I think this sort of uh, becomes refined in each of our lives. So there's not really any, like, two-step process to it. But in order to give a pithy response, I would say it boils down to balancing out respect and, um, you know, a sense of closeness. This is a father that love um i'm not sure how helpful that actually is in practice but i think that's sort of like the the path you got to narrow down tim i think boldness is always uh, uh, kind of a standing on something or it's always backed by something and if i can see a boldness it's it's sort of backed by our our own kind of self-deification like my desires my interests um my own dignity then that would violate reverence for God. But if what's kind of the firm platform that's underneath boldness is his covenant promises, um, seems like that's very reverent. Like when Moses uh, intercedes for Israel, when they've sinned, he says, like, he quotes God. That's the experiential side. So number five, or letter E, I think, um, is recognize why, that while the verbal side of what we're doing as we talk to God is one-sided, God is nonetheless an active participant. And I think that's something that's really important for us to be, to be thinking through. You know, prayer can sometimes feel like you're talking to the wind. Um, theologically, we know that's not the case, but in practice, it can feel that way. That can be discouraging. Um, it can be, you know, doubt-inducing. Um, and so it's, it's always helpful, I think, to remem- remember that God is actively engaged with us while we pray. Um, he is at the very moment that you are praying, listening to you. No different than if you were telling me a story and I was listening, he is hearing us in the moment. He is also reacting. In uh, Revelations 5.8, the prayers of the saints are described as incense, something that's burning before God, a pleasing aroma. Um, he is not listening unemotionally or uncaringly. Uh, he hears and he is reacting. Our, our, our prayers are pleasing to him at um, and then, you know, he's also acting. And to Wilson's point, that, that sometimes uh, that might be a no, um, but he is, he's hearing our prayers and he is weaving them um, uh, into his sovereign rule over existence. Um, our prayers are part of God, how God rules existence. He, he, uh, he, he does things through them. Our prayers matters and he acts on them. So between listening, reacting, and acting, no matter how it may feel, God is an active participant. And I think if, if we don't keep that in mind, it becomes pretty easy to have prayer become more of a formality, a formalistic uh, thing that we do. And we'll talk more about that next week. But remember, he is actively engaged. Um, and then finally, and this is very much uh, specific to this act of communion, uh, communion with God, fellowship with God in prayer, fight the temptation to be bored, to rush, or to get to the practical stuff. 
I promise you that feeling is always going to be there. We are going to have to fight it. We are, again, by nature's, uh, apart from grace, suppressors of the truth about God. It is the natural man's tendency to never want to know God in truth, let alone have fellowship with him. Fellowship and communion with God in prayer is utterly alien to us by nature. Um, this is going to be something that it's going to take some practice, um, you know, especially if it's not natural. To, I'm sorry, especially if it's not something you've done a, a lot before. If most of your prayer life has been, you know, making requests and focused around making requests, just just brace yourself for having to sort of struggle through this for a little while. Um, it, it may feel weird or odd. You may not get it at first. That's fine, but persist continue on. Um, it'll eventually be something that, that makes sense, I think. But just recognize that it's not, it's not surprising if this is hard or if your nature bucks at this um, or you want to sort of get those quick doxological statements out and then get right to the things you really care about, which is you know your needs, your neighbor's needs, sports teams, whatever. Um, that's exactly who you are by nature. It's who I am by nature. And it's something we need to recognize and fight through as we try to communion with God. All right. We have reached the end. Um, are there any questions or comments, um, rejoinders, rebuttals, anything at all, anything we've said so far, or any other uh, practical helps that um, those who have used prayer to commune with God, have fellowship with God, would like to submit for consideration for the group? Gary. As, as the old man in this church, and I really want to encourage all of you younger people to stay the course. Now, I had an experience in my life that was really bad. And prayer didn't work. I couldn't understand what, you know, because I prayed for this specific thing. And But, uh, so I was knocked back, gave up on on say prayer for quite a while, for two or three years, and and I still struggle with it because I just can't understand why that happened. And uh, but something that helped to bring me back was well the fact that okay I have been a Christian and coming and trying, and so for you young people like you say sometimes you get tired from work and stuff and you don't have time to pray well. I'll encourage you to say, well, hey, okay, but do your best to, to try to pray all the time. My wife and I now, I'm old and retired. Prayer works, prayer time is a lot easier for me. Sure, sure. But by coming at it and practice and work at it, and, you know, finally, it had some examples like one time I was with Tim and Willie, and they let, let me share in their prayer with their family, their prayer time. And what a joy it was for me to see that. I saw, I was up fishing, and uh, we saw a group of men. They prayed at their at their dinner table, and that, that's a thrill. This prayer time, I want to encourage you to try, to try, to try. Something that helped bring me back, because I would ask those questions. Well, what, what should I pray for? What, you know, I don't like the no's. You know, found out that this was a, this was a, but, but you know, you gotta stay with it. And in in Luke chapter eleven, in verse thirteen, it says, "If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Well, if you're having trouble praying, this is what helped me. All right, what should I be asking for in Luke eleven thirteen to uh, have the heavenly Father give me the Holy Spirit? I can ask for that. That was one thing that we can ask for. Is Lord give me the Holy Spirit? And so keep trying, keep hanging in there. You might have some tough times, but uh, stay the course. And I'm glad you guys are here because every time, and you even mentioned word molecules there. And I tell the young people here by being here, you might fall asleep in a sermon, but you did get at least one molecule of something <laughs> and added in. You guys that are here, you young people, you're getting something by being here. And now try to practice it. It's hard when you got kids and stuff, but I just want to encourage you and then ask for that Holy Spirit. God, a lot of times when you go, hey, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit and uh, give it a shot. Just stay the course. Pray, 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 pray. Practice it and that, as much as you can. It, uh, I think it makes a difference. It has for Barbara and myself now that we, we pray regularly now, which I, I, I'm remiss. When I was a young man, I didn't do that. No, the message of perseverance is, is critical. On that note, if you're ever struggling with the what to pray for, I, it's in your notes, actually, but I cannot recommend this book enough. It's a Call to Spiritual Reformation by D.A. Carson. It's a walkthrough of the prayers of Paul in the New Testament. Um, so there's a, there's a reference at the back of the last page in your bulletin if you actually want to look it up. But it's a phenomenal book. It, um, it, it's, it's really sort of on praying through the scriptures in general, but the, the, the priorities, the prayer, and the emotional life of Paul on display. Fantastic book on the subject. If uh, you ignore everything else I say, at least read the book. All right. Well, with that, we're pretty much at time. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you that, again, you, you are a God who loves us, who is, is not unknowable, who is who has made us to be satisfied in our experience with you. When we could have suffered the loss of, of every creature comfort and pleasure and relationship in our life, and yet still be fully satisfied because we have you. And not just the things that you have done for us or are doing or promised to do, certainly that's a part, but you yourself, who you are, our experience of you is meant to be greater than life, better than life for us. And I pray that you would instill in us an ever-increasing hunger for you and that would manifest in our time in the Word and it would manifest in how we engage you in prayer. And I pray that our that we've talked about this morning would find fertile soil, Lord, it would bear fruit, and that we'd be a people who not only engage much with you in prayer, but do so spending time with you as as dutiful and loving and happy children to spend time with their Father. And we ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.